Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to read briefly from Revelation chapter 16. And then we'll turn over to our sermon passage, which is Psalm 75. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 75. So we'll take a break from our series in the book of Hebrews. Come back to that next week. And this morning we'll look at Psalm 75. But before that, let's look at Hebrews chapter 16. And I'll read the whole chapter, the seven bowls of wrath. Revelation 16, hear now the word of the Lord. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And living, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day. On that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. They gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there was noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God 
to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Amen and amen. In the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, we do not have time to go into detail here. However, there are some large themes that emerge from this vision of John on Patmos. He sees seven bowls, or we might say cups, and they are full of wrath, the judgments of God on the earth. And as they are, one by one, seven by the way, meaning full and complete in total, the judgment of God will be upended so that after the seventh cup or bowl is emptied, there is a loud voice crying, it is finished. Which of course is an echo of Christ on the cross. And here in this chapter we see the full sevenfold judgments of God emptied on the earth. Creating a contrast for us. That either the kingdoms of this world succumb to the complete sevenfold judgment of God as is here envisioned. Or they come under the shadow of the cross. Where that same sevenfold judgment of God was emptied out and Jesus said, it is finished. Beloved, choose you this day. Will you drink the wrath of God alone? Or will you believe that Christ has drank it for you? With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 75. Our psalm of the month this morning is Psalm 75. As we go one by one through these psalms, we've come into this little section. Psalm 73, 74, 75. It goes on. are psalms of Asaph. Psalm 75 is one of this little collection of psalms of Asaph. Psalm 75, hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Salah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drink and drain and drink down. 
But I will declare forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be exalted. Amen and amen. As I mentioned, we see in the little subtitle that this is a psalm of Asaph. I want you to imagine for a moment our author, Asaph. He's a Levite. He's been appointed by King David to lead the worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. He has some friends, Jeduthun and the sons of Korah. They work together to arrange the divine service to make sure there is perpetual praise in the tabernacle. He comes upon a few leaves, a few scrolls, and he sees Psalms 57, 58, and 59. And he notices that these three Psalms of David are all set to do not destroy. And those three Psalms of David set to the tune, do not destroy, all pertain to David's time in the wilderness when he was fleeing from Saul to save his life. And Asaph apparently is meditating on those psalms. And he begins to write one of his own. Drawing inspiration from the experience of David, who had been under the hand of Saul and prayed to God three times, Lord, do not destroy. Asaph takes up that prayer and prays it himself. In like manner, Asaph hands this psalm to the chief musician, the choir master. And he says, let all the congregation sing it. Let all the Levites in the tabernacle sing this prayer. And so now it passes to us. We do not have a tabernacle. We do not have a Levitical choir. You are the choir. And we have a choir master. It's not Eric. It's Jesus. Jesus is the chief musician and choir master. In whom, with whom, we sing this song. And he teaches us to pray for justice. Teaches us to pray for the judgments of God to come upon the earth to the salvation of our souls. Now to learn to pray for judgment with Asaph. To learn what Asaph learned that day that he was reading David's Psalms, 57, 8, and 9, do not destroy, we must begin with gratitude. Notice in verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Now Asaph begins in verse 1 with gratitude for two reasons. The first is, this is Asaph's job. Asaph is the worship leader. He is the minister of music. He is the Levite at the head of the Levitical choir. It is his job to create gratitude in the hearts of God's people. It is his job to put praise on the lips of Israelites. And so he begins with, this is my theme. This is my message. When we learn to pray for the judgments of God... We got to begin with gratitude. We have to first see what is good and right about the world. And namely, this is the second reason he begins with gratitude. 
Because the wondrous works of God declare, speak, reveal, make known, communicate that your name is near. Now we could interpret this one of two ways. The first is that the name of God, be it Yahweh or Elohim or any number of those Old Testament Hebrew words, is in close proximity. That is to say that we can at any moment and in any place call on the name of the Lord. And that would be a good application of this verse. Let's be grateful that any time we're in trouble, we can call on the name of the Lord. That name is near. It is close by. But it's also possible that what Asaph actually means is that the name of the Lord is near. Capital N. That the name of God is Emmanuel. God is with us. That the name of God is Yahweh. I am with you. The name of the Lord is near, is intimate, is imminent. The Lord God is a God who does not dwell in the highest heavens, aloof and indifferent to us. Of all the religions in the world that God is not, deism is certainly not one of them. He is no deist. He is not indifferent to the works of the world. His name is near. He is the God who is near us. He is the God who is with us. That's his identity. That's who he is. Let's be grateful. Let's give thanks. That whatever's happening in our lives and whatever's happening in our world, this much we know. Our God is a God who is near, who is with us. This is that first virtue that Asaph wants his people to have. Gratitude. But he has stirred it up by way of reference to wondrous works. And in the rest of the psalm, Asaph will give one more virtue and three works. So let's look at the first work. The wonderful work of God that shows us that God is with us. The first work is in verses 2 and 3. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. The first wonderful work of God is His judgment. His just and timely judgments. His judgments here in verse 2 are said to come at the proper time. The appointed time. The established time. That is to say that like a wizard, God's judgments are neither too early nor too late. His judgments arrive precisely when they ought. They are the perfectly timed judgment. Now I know that for us, we very often look at our lives and look at our world and say judgment is delayed. And we want to see the wrath of God poured out from its cup. But God's timing is never late. And sometimes we may look at our own lives and say God was too hasty in judging us. He needed to be more patient with me. But it is not true. He is never hasty. Our God's timing in judgment is perfect. But so too, His judgments are upright, straight, vertical, bending neither to the right nor to the left. His, his judgments are neither too harsh 
nor too easy. Just as his, time, his timing is perfect, so his measure is perfect. His judgments come at just the right time, and his judgments come in just the right degree, just the right amount. To prove this point in verse 3, we're handed an illustration. The earth and its inhabitants are dissolved, but its pillars are set up firmly. The judgments of God come, as it were, upon the earth with a total annihilation that leaves the earth intact. Do you find that hard to imagine? Let me give you an illustration. God sends a lightning bolt of judgment upon the prairie. The grass ignites. The whole place goes up in a massive conflagration and burns to raw black soil. What happens next spring? It grows lush and verdant and green. God opens up the heavens and sends a flood and sweeps every semblance of creation away. What happens when the clouds pass and the sun comes out and the rainbow shines in the sky? Life begins again. God's judgments are perfect in their time and perfect in their measure, achieving the salvation of the creation. This is how wonderfully God works in our world. God wonderfully works judgment at the right time and in the right measure in order to bring about the salvation of the world. Let's be grateful. Let's be grateful for a beautiful world. Driving home from Geneva College a few weeks ago, we were in upstate New York along I-90. I looked to my right, and there is a massive multi-acre factory. And all that's left are the walls. The roof is gone. The windows are gone. And wouldn't you know it, that massive building that went bankrupt years ago was full of trees and bushes and flowers. What we make will not last. What God has made will. His judgments come and the world survives. He sweeps away sin and misery and life remains. This is the first wonderful work of God. Asaph then introduces us to the second virtue. Let us be grateful for this wonderful work. We see that his name is near. He is with us. Judging timely, judging in measure, judging to the salvation of the world. But then let us have this virtue of humility. Verses 4 and 5. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. I said to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up the horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. In these three turns of phrase... Asaph puts into the mouth of God a rebuke to the pride that is at work in the heart of every human. You and I are so prone to boasting. Some of us have big mouths, full of big words that say wonderful things about us. And everyone hears how wonderful we are. Some of us have small, quiet mouths, but we deal with one another boastfully. We have large expectations for others. 
that they meet our needs, that they pet our egos, that they recognize our gifts and honor us. We are either boastful or at least we deal boastfully. But God says to us today, don't do that. I am judge, you are not. He says to the wicked, do not lift up the horn, do not lift up the horn on high. In Hebrew culture, the horn is the image, the metaphor of strength, prosperity, and power. For the horn of the ox was the most perilous and dangerous part of agriculture. Many a farmer was gored and lost his life to the horn of an ox. That's why Moses put it in his law. That's why there are regulations governing when oxes gore humans. Because it was a fairly common experience. And it needed to be regulated in the law. He says to us who have strength. You have great wisdom. Praise God and be grateful. But don't flex. Don't lift up that horn. And do not boast or deal boastfully. I am the wise. Let all listen to me and my wisdom. Some of you have great wealth. Don't flex. Don't show off the prosperity in a way that says, celebrate me. I have all the money in the world. Some of you have great skill, great talent, great strength. Don't flex. Don't deal boastfully with one another. Don't exhibit the great horn that God has given you. Be grateful for it. But be humble with it. Being grateful and humble with the blessings of God. For finally, God says to us, do not speak with stiff neck. This metaphor comes from the farm too. This refers to that big horned ox refusing to put his neck into the yoke and pull the plow or the implement. Recognize, dear friends, that if you have been given some great blessing, be it wisdom, be it wealth, be it a work ethic, be it strength of body or strength of mind or strength of heart, whatever great blessing God has given you, that great horn that you have, is not for self-aggrandizement. It is so that you might wear a yoke for God. It is so that you might do His work in the world. That you might serve His glory and His kingdom. That you might labor on His behalf in a fruitful way. This is our second virtue. Let us be a grateful people. Seeing that our God is with us and blessing us. But let us be a humble people. Using those blessings to the glory of God and to the good of one another. It's now then that Asaph gives us the two other wonderful works. The wonderful works of God beginning in verse 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Just as we saw in verses 2 and 3, the judgments of God are timely and they are just, bringing about the salvation of the world. But here now we are told that the judgments of God raise up and bring down. It's not focused on creation. 
It's focused on history and on human civilization. You see, exaltation, that is success in human endeavor, triumph and victory in the field of battle or business, doesn't come from the East. And in an Israelite world, what's in the East? Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, those great international evil empires. And exaltation doesn't come from political success. Exaltation doesn't come from a great military complex. Exaltation doesn't come by building a massive international empire. It doesn't come from the East. It also doesn't come from the West. To the West of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. That massive highway of international trade and commerce, which made Tyre and Sidon, the port cities of the Middle East, fabulously wealthy and the possessors of every comfort and convenience the ancient world had. But exaltation doesn't come from financial prosperity. Exaltation doesn't come from having a great international business that triumphs over all other businesses. Nor does it come from the south, that is the wilderness. It doesn't come from, there's two ways to understand this. Perhaps Asaph is saying those great camel caravans, those ships of the desert, which brought the treasures of Cush and Ethiopia and Egypt into the land. Maybe he's seeing this ring of great imperial and economic power and saying success isn't there. Don't look there. It could also be that he's thinking of David in the time when David prayed, O God, do not destroy. And David hid from Saul in the wilderness in the south, in the land of Judah, where David was alone with God and his faith was tested and his faith was tried and his faith was proved. And if this is what Asaph means, then we can summarize it this way. Asaph warns us, success in your life the measure of the meaning and the value of your life is not in politics or in money or in piety or in your religiosity or in your performance as a Christian. Where does exaltation come from? If it is not in the spiritual retreat of the desert, if it is not in the economic prosperity of the sea, if it is not in the great empires of this age, where does exaltation come from? But God is judge. It is God who decides who will triumph. And it is God who decides who will fall. Why does one church grow and not another? Is it not the Lord? Why does one life grow and one life shrink? Is it not the Lord? Is He not the one who runs this world? And is this not a wonderful work to produce in us a spirit of gratitude? That if I have achieved anything, it wasn't me. It was the gift and mercy of God. And if I have failed, I humble myself. 
And I admit I have fallen short of God's glory. And he has brought me into the wilderness to try me and to test me. To see if I will rely upon him. Beloved, do you see? The wonderful work of God in history. The wonderful work of God in your life. That he is running the world and running your life. And with these just judgments, he raises you up and he brings you down. He raises us up and he brings us down. His third wonderful work is in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Asaph imagines God with cup in hand, meaning he is ready. With red wine well mixed, meaning it is ready. With cup upturned, meaning he is already pouring it out. God's judgments are already falling on the earth. God is already managing his judgments in the world, in creation, in history. He's already bringing his wrath against sin into our lives and into this place. He is pouring out his judgments in this place and in this time in us and among us. To say that its dregs are drained and drunk is to say that every last drop will go out of God's judgment. This image of God, a just judge, emptying a cup of wrath on the world is one that Jeremiah picks up on. Chapter 51, verse 7, he says Babylon will drink the cup of God's wrath. It is an image that John on Patmos in Revelation 16 picks up on and says there will be seven cups of wrath that will be emptied on the earth until it is finished. God's judgments will be total, leaving no sin unturned, untouched. God's judgment will be complete, leaving creation entirely saved, leaving history entirely meaningful, leaving all things coming to a good end. And there is one other place that this metaphor is picked up on. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says to his disciples, can you drink the cup that I will drink? And they say, we can. And they say, we can. We can drink that cup of God's wrath. We can drain the last drop of the judgments of God. Because they have no idea what they're talking about. And Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup. And he just changed the definition of cup. Because they do not drink the cup he drinks. He says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. He drinks the cup of the wrath of God. But on the night in which he is betrayed, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. 
take all of you and drink. His disciples do not drink the cup of wrath. Psalm 116. You drink the cup of salvation. Because he drank the cup of judgment. He switches cups with you. The cup of wrath you deserve, he drank. And the cup of salvation and life he holds, he hands to you today that you by faith might drink and live. Beloved, this is a wonderful work of God. That he should judge the world and so save it. That he should judge all humanity and so save some. That he should judge Jesus and save us. Those are the three wonderful works of God. All judgments, glorious judgments, beautiful judgments. Judgments that save the world. Judgments that save the elect. Judgments that save you and me. There's only one response to this. In verse 9, Asaph says, But I will declare forever I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. There's that name. The name that is near. The name that can be called upon. The God of Jacob. You know the heel grabber. You know the supplanter. You know that selfish, wicked sinner Jacob who tried to connive and trick his way into the covenant blessings. That's who he is. He's the God of Jacob. The God of sinners. The God of those who wrestle with God and get renamed Israel. He's near to us. He comes to us, and so let us declare forever and sing praise forever, this God. Let us be grateful and sing His praise. Let us be humble and celebrate Him and not us. Because let us conclude in verse 10, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Let us trust the judgments of God. All the strength of the wicked will come to nothing. All the wealth and the wisdom and the power of the wicked will come to nothing. We don't have to run around with hacksaws in our hands. Chopping off all the horns of the wicked. Don't do that. You don't need to. Trust the judgments of God. The I that is singing here isn't you. It is an Asaph. As Charles Spurgeon said, we sing the we psalms because Jesus sang the I psalms. Beloved, this is Christ leading us in worship. He is the choir master. He is the true Asaph who at the right hand of the king who in fact united the office of Asaph and the, uh, the office of David into one office, who is both the true David and the true Asaph, 
the king and head of the church, and the worship leader. And he has penned these words for us, that he might lead us into gratitude. That he might lead us into humility by showing us his wonderful works. That Jesus is exalting the horn of the righteous and cutting off the horn of the wicked. Beloved, I know that when you look around, and if you've paid any attention to the news, which as you know I seldom do, we need horns of the wicked cut off, do we not? Are there not nations destroying nations? Has not war raised its ugly head again? Tom prayed, as he so often does, that the horns of the wicked would be cut off. Do we not still murder babies by the millions? Do we not need the horns of the wicked cut off? How does the church dehorn Satan? We humble ourselves and give thanks to God. But he's already done it in Christ. And we pray for justice. We pray for the judgments of God to be emptied out. Father, grab the cup and pour it out. Because you work wonderfully. Those just judgments will save the world, save the elect, will save you and me. Beloved, God runs the world wonderfully. Let's be grateful. Let's be humble. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the extraordinary vision of Asaph through the power of your spirit inspiring him and carrying him along. That through the the vision of your spirit, he might see clearly how this world really runs. That you are working wonderfully in this world that we might know you are near. You are here with us. And that your judgments are perfectly timed and good. Father, we pray that these truths would grip our hearts and change our thinking. That we with Asaph would see your wonderful works and be filled with gratitude and humility. Father, we pray that you would write the words we have heard upon our hearts and write them upon our minds that we might live them this week in this world. We give you thanks for these things and ask your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen.